Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week on the show, we'll be taking a look at some grimy mice who may have a role to play in drug development. Plus, we'll be dissecting human influence on the Mississippi's flood risk. This is The Nature Podcast for the 5th of April 2018. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Listeners, if you live in a big city, there's a fair chance that you've shared your living space with a mouse at some point. I mean, I know I have in the past. For many, these uninvited visitors are pests. But there are also some research groups interested in whether these wild rodents could be a welcome guest in research labs. Of course, mice are an important model animal in all sorts of research, including testing new drugs or other therapies. Laboratory mice are bred to be genetically similar which reduces natural variation and allows researchers to more accurately compare the effects of a particular treatment. These mice are well looked after, as David Massapust from the University of Minnesota explains. Well, a lab mouse lives a very privileged existence. So it lives in a sanitized environment. It drinks perfectly clean water. It eats very clean food. And it lives essentially like a boy in a bubble, in a room that is designed to keep pathogens out. And so it is a clean, privileged uh, existence. This environment is important as it helps prevent unexpected variables like infections from affecting results. Now though, researchers are wondering whether these squeaky clean conditions are influencing a lab mouse's immune system. If so, these animals may not be representative of how a human immune system might react to the same treatments. Humans don't live in a sanitized environment, uh, even if we try to make it so. Certainly, we've evolved to live in a microbial world and our immune systems uh, sort of behave differently when we have a sort of normalized history of immune experience or infectious experience. And because we are trying to, to model humans typically, then it raises concerns that if we only look and sanitize animals, that we may be missing something. Or, or what we're discovering, even though it may be very true, may fail to translate to sort of the human existence. David wanted to change things up and try to introduce a little of the outdoors into laboratory mice. 
This required obtaining some wild mice, which turned out to be a bit more tricky than expected. So about 15 years ago, I was a postdoc in Georgia. And uh, the idea struck me then. I called a bunch of exterminators uh, who said, sure, we'll give you mice, and then never called me back. It was surprisingly difficult. I ultimately found a petting zoo that allowed me to take a look at some of their mice uh, that were infesting the property. And so when I moved to Minnesota, it was actually one of the, the first projects I initiated. And ultimately, to turn this into a real experiment and, and to go from just observation to experimentation, we were fortunate that a facility was built on campus that was what we call a biosafety level three. Biosafety level three labs are high containment facilities that are typically used when working on serious diseases of humans. In this case though, it allowed the researchers to contain any diseases that the outdoor mice happened to be carrying to prevent contamination of other mice experiments. David housed his outdoor mice, which he calls dirty mice, with groups of laboratory rodents. As well as sharing their living space, the dirty mice also shared their microbes, which of course included their pathogens. We found that a number of infections moved over. You know, it's kind of like being raised on a desert island for all your, you know, your whole life, and then uh, I drop you off at age 20 into daycare. So there's a commotion in the blood. There are a lot of immune responses that transpire. Things kind of settle down after a couple of months, but importantly, the immune system never returns to how it was before, and it has adopted these characteristics that we were looking at that were more like humans. In a 2016 Nature paper, David and his colleagues showed that the immune system of dirty mice were more developed than those of laboratory mice, with higher levels of certain immune cells. The team co-housed mice bought in a pet shop with laboratory mice, and while not all of them survived the exposure to outside diseases, the lab mice that did ended up themselves with a much more developed immune system. David described the change in the immune system as going from resembling a human baby's to that of a human adult. Now, it's tough to imagine how you could standardise the microbes that a co-housed lab mouse is exposed to, or how its immune system would be affected. But David thinks this variability could actually be a benefit, as it may be more representative of the variation seen in the human population. This could be useful when testing new drugs. The idea that if you can have a reproducible phenomenon in mice, that have different microbial experiences. Just like humans, you know, you, you and I have had very different infectious histories. You might be able to filter out those, uh, those therapeutics that really have a lower probability of being broadly successful in, uh, in a diverse human population. David wants to know whether the dirty mice could have been used to predict the failure of vaccines that work well in the traditional mouse model, but then turned out not to work in humans at a later stage. Others can see the potential of the dirty mice as well. Here's immunologist Eleanor Riley, who thinks the new system might offer some advantages. So I think it's a bridge between the purely lab approach and the real world. Um, and I think that's an important bridge. I think doing the very highly controlled experiments that we're used to doing is really important for unpicking basic biological principles. But then when we take that information into a population of people, we're all of a sudden introducing a huge additional level of complexity, not just genetic diversity amongst our population, but all of those environmental complexities. And that jump is huge from a very, very highly controlled lab mouse to essentially an uncontrolled human population. And I think the dirty mice offer that bridge to step from within the same species clean mouse to dirty mouse, and then saying dirty mouse to dirty human. 
Whether dirty mice and their immune systems will help give a better representation of humans remains to be seen. David is by no means the only researcher investigating their potential, but a lot of work needs to be done, both in terms of research and infrastructure, before these mice are ready to be used for testing new drugs and therapies. However, while the dirty mouse system might not be there quite yet, David can see a place for it alongside traditional mouse models. I think it could become a standard way of doing things, but certainly not the only standard way, and it will never replace the standardized clean model, uh, at least in the foreseeable future, and it shouldn't. I think the things that need to be done are to sort of fully vet its value uh, and to sort of provide examples where it would have better predictive value for an outcome in humans than maybe the clean mouse would have. That was David Massapust from the University of Minnesota in the US. You also heard from Ellen O'Reilly from the Rosalind Institute in the UK. You can read more about the research involving dirty mice in our feature article, which you can find over at nature.com news. Later in this show, we'll hear about a tantalising signal that may come from dark matter. Up next, though, we're joined by Emily Bannum for this week's research highlights. The world's most massive mammals live in our oceans and seas. But why are animals like sea cows so sizeable? It could be as simple as the need to keep warm. A team from Stanford University weighed up body mass data on nearly 7,000 species, both living and extinct. They found that the majority of marine mammals, from dugongs to dolphins, have evolved to have a mass, on average, of 500 kilograms. Smaller mammals lose heat faster in water, while much larger ones have a greater need to feed, suggesting that the life aquatic has a sweet spot for size. Dive into the full paper at PNAS. The dazzling display of a supernova over a billion light years away was cut short by dense gases, according to a group of researchers. Usually, when a dying star explodes, the glow is visible for many weeks. A supernova spotted by NASA's Kepler spacecraft in 2015 surged to its brightest point in just over two days, before dimming to be half as bright fewer than five days after that. This brief moment of brilliance may have been sparked when the supernova's outer material struck a dense shell of gas that the star had shaken off earlier on in its death throes. Within three weeks, the light had faded from view, making this the shortest-lived supernova seen to date. But at least it went out with a bang. Read this illuminating research over at Nature Astronomy. Now, listeners, before our next piece, we just wanted to let you know that the Nature Podcast has been nominated for a Webby Award. Yes, we are thrilled about it. But no, we're not just telling you to show off. You see, this means we're also nominated for the People's Voice Award. This is selected by the voting public. In other words, you. To vote for us in the People's Voice Award, head to vote.webbyawards.com. We're somewhat predictably, in the podcast and digital audio science and education category. And there's a big button there that says vote, so please click that. And while you're there, have a look at some of the other great podcasts. Right, Adam, back to the science. Yes, next up, reporter Noah Baker has been investigating how humans have impacted one of the world's great rivers. The Mississippi. It isn't just one of the most important words to memorise before a spelling bee, it's also one of North America's most important pieces of natural infrastructure. The Mississippi feeds into the major shipping port of Louisiana, and it has great economic value. 
it's how the U.S. basically exports its agricultural um, products to the world. This is Sam Munoz from Northeastern University in Boston, United States. He's been looking back at the Mississippi's history to find out more about how humans have impacted the river over time, in particular how likely it is to flood. I spoke to Sam to find out more, and he started by giving me a bit of background about the Mississippi itself. The Mississippi is the largest river in North America, and it's one of the largest rivers in the world. Um, It's also one of the most heavily engineered rivers in the world. Tell me what kind of engineering projects are, are being done here. How is it being modified? On the upper part of the river, the Mississippi itself and its major tributaries, the Ohio River and the uh, Missouri River, um, have dams on them. Further downstream, uh, more in the southern United States where we did our study, what engineering has basically done is is what's called channelize the river, effectively encase it in concrete to keep it from moving around. Um, And we've also, on the lower part of the river, built... Um, levees. And again, this is in an effort to, to help us channelize the river and to sort of keep water when the water gets high in the river to keep it from spilling out onto the floodplain. And flood risk was what you really focused on in this study. So what is it that you actually did? We developed a long history of when the river flooded, when the Mississippi River flooded, and how big those floods were. And we went back 500 years. So how do you go back and try to measure floods historically over 500 years? How do you how do, you do that? We use two different techniques to do this, just so we could sort of independently check them. Uh, so the first um, is to use tree rings. And so if you have a tree uh, that's living near the river, and it's a tree that doesn't particularly like getting wet, doesn't like getting its, its feet wet, we'll say its roots. When the river does flood, and it floods for you know long enough, say a week or two, that tree um, is unhappy. It gets stressed, right? It doesn't like being wet. And so the growth ring in that particular year at a cellular level shows all kinds of what my colleague calls anatomical anomalies. So that is the cells look funny under the microscope. And so he can identify those, what he calls flood rings, right? The, tr- the growth ring in that year, it looks funny. And he can identify those and it gives us a really precise chronology over the, the time that that tree lived when that tree was flooded. So that's one thing we did, we used trees. And the other thing we did um, was to use sediments, to use mud. We went to lakes that are right next to the river. Um, These lakes, most of the time, are basically disconnected from the river. But when there's a flood and that flood is big enough, suddenly the river rises and water and sediment that's being carried by the river ends up in that lake and leave a sort of layer of coarser material at the bottom of the lake. And so what we did was we went Um, and we collected sediment cores. And and then we get a core, a record, of when floods happen in that particular place over time. Okay, so you gathered 500 years worth of data about flood records, and you laid them out in front of you. What did you see? Floods that we get today are much, much bigger than anything we've seen in the past. Um, We also see that the river is flooding more frequently now than it used to. Okay, so there's an upward trend over the course of the 500 years that you were looking at. I guess the big question is, what's causing that change? Part of that increase seems to be explained by climate. Climate has changed a little bit uh, over this time, and so some of that increase seems to be associated with climate. But then there's this big, about three quarters of that change is not doesn't seem to be explainable by what we've seen the climate system do. And so what we think that is is as this engineering of the river that we've done. Would the engineers that originally did these channelizations, these dams and so on, not have had an idea that this could have an impact on flooding? 
the infrastructure we have was really designed in the mid 20th century. Um, and what they did was actually take storms that had happened in the sort of mid to early 20th century and sort of project. Um, and so, so our whole understanding of how much the river can flood is based on sort of a mid 20th century view of that river. And of course, that is very likely to change over the coming century. If flows are going to actually increase um, and peak flows will increase under climate change over the future, is the infrastructure that we have in place now really appropriate for this future world? Okay, so looking forward, what lessons do you think can be learned for scientists and for engineers from research like this paper that you've just done? There's not an easy fix to, to, to fix this problem. The, I think that the, the bigger message here about this, what this study is saying is that um, usually when we try to control nature, um, it's more difficult and more expensive than we could have imagined in the first place. And I think this is a, a nice example of that. And so when we, as we continue to try to, you know, sort of engineer nature, rather than trying to fight it, we might think about ways to sort of work with its natural rhythms rather than trying to impose our sort of human will on it. So I think that's, that's a sort of bigger philosophical message, but specifically for the Mississippi, you know, that's a conundrum um, that there's no easy answer to. That was Sam Munoz speaking with Noah Baker. You can read the full paper over at nature.com slash nature. Finally this week, it's time for the news chat and senior reporter Davide Castelvecchi is here in the studio. Hi, Davide. Hello, Adam. First up this week, there has been a tantalising new result on dark matter. Before we get to that new result, let's have a quick recap. Why do we actually think dark matter exists in the first place? There are multiple lines of evidence. Um, Originally, it was seen that uh, galaxies in galaxy clusters were moving in strange ways, that uh, they seem to be moving under the influence of some kind of unseen mass. And then later, uh, similar effects were seen in inside galaxies themselves. And now an experiment has just uh, returned some results. Uh, it was actually searching for a signal from the halo of dark matter. What would this halo of dark matter be? Most of the dark matter in the universe would be in these halos around the the visible parts of galaxies. So um, there's um, dark matter that surrounds us. It's inside the galaxy, but it also extends to this larger halo, um, and that's and that's where the particles fly around the galaxy. And how is this particular experiment hoping to spot a signal from this halo of dark matter? So, yeah, so the technique that this experiment and also other ex- experiments apply is to just place a chunk of cold ordinary matter in some uh, like underground laboratory, for example, under a mountain where it's protected from uh, other sources of radiation, such as the cosmic rays, and just wait. And so you just hope that you know once in a while a particle of dark matter will bump into an atom, and the resulting collision will release a flash of energy, and that's what the experiment looks for. How can you be sure when you look at all these flashes this experiment picks up that you're not just picking up some other interaction that is happening between these atoms and radiation, say, from the surrounding area? So the, the, the number of collisions with dark matter particles should peak in early June and it should bottom out in early December. 
And so on top of the, uh, the background, which should be constant year-round, um, the dark matter should be visible as this, this little up and down. Why is it that dark matter prefers summer to winter? Aha, that's because the solar system moves inside this halo at a quite a high, a high speed, something like 250 kilometers per second. But during certain parts of the year, the Earth's orbit moves in the same direction as the sun inside the galaxy. And when it adds up, uh, they call it the effect of the, you know rain on the windshield. When when it's moving, when the Earth is moving faster inside the halo, the number of collisions should increase, and when it's moving slower, it should decrease. And they thought before that they had seen this kind of annual cyclical pattern, and, and now they seem even more sure that they're seeing it. And well, this has been a long operatic drama that's been playing out in the uh, you know in the underground laboratories of Italy f- since. 1997, when this experiment first announced, even with just a few weeks worth of data, they were already seeing this fluctuation, and they announced it, and nobody believed it, and and they've been seeing it ever since, and people still don't believe it. So what would people actually need to see to be convinced that uh, this were a signal from, from dark matter? The one thing that would be, uh, would convince at least some of the skeptics is if somebody repeated the same experiment or a similar experiment in the southern hemisphere and still saw a peak in June and a minimum in December, because then it would be difficult to argue that there is some kind of effect from the seasons. On the other hand, if you see the opposite fluctuation, you know, if it goes down in June and it goes up in December, then it's probably due to something that happens on the ground. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out to see whether anything can firm up this potential observation of dark matter. But in the meantime, let's move on to our second story, which is on a push to relax rules for clinical cancer trials in America. Now, why would you want to relax uh, the rules for cancer trials? It's quite astounding when you look at the numbers uh, to see that one out of five clinical trials for cancer drugs is unable to find enough patients to, to test the treatment. And so a lot of researchers are now trying to push for re, for this relaxation of the standards in the hope that they will be able to, you know, to test their drugs. Who's actually suggesting this, that we should uh, relax these rules? Uh, it's, it's a combination of researchers and the authority uh, that, that regulates the uh, clinical trials, which is the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and also stakeholders such as patient organizations. It, it certainly seems a shame if some studies aren't able to go ahead because they're not able to get enough participants. But surely these rules are in place for good, important reasons. Yeah, so originally these rules may have been put into place to protect either the uh, sort of the, the statistical significance uh, and integrity of the results, or to potentially protect patients from adverse reactions and so on. And but but sometimes you know, researchers may have perhaps extended rules that were devised for earlier clinical trials to newer ones where perhaps they were not as necessary. So what's an example of one of the rules that researchers are actually looking to relax? Well, one long-standing rule has been to exclude patients who were HIV positive. 
And that may be a legacy of a time when being HIV positive almost always meant that your immune system was severely compromised, uh, which maybe now is no longer the case. And one of the rules is, to me at least, uh, a bit more controversial in that it relates to the minimum age of participants in trials. Yeah, a lot of researchers have started to wonder whether, um, you know, if if you're 15 versus 18 physiologically, your response to a medication may not be so different. But traditionally, maybe researchers have been very risk averse. Uh, you know, they've been they've avoided including children from clinical trials. So again, this is one of the rules that are going to come under scrutiny and and maybe will change. Davide, thank you for joining us. For more on those two news stories and for others, of course, head over to nature.com forward slash news. And our regular roundtable discussion back chat will be back in the next couple of weeks. Let us know what science news you'd love to get the behind the scenes gossip on. Get in touch by email podcast at nature.com or on Twitter at Nature Podcast. And in the meantime, if you're after more nature multimedia, then keep your eyes peeled for a new video about bee behaviour. Find that on Nature News' social media channels. I'm Adam Nevy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.